2: slow burn media and evergreen podcast presents who killed a podcast that provides a voice for the voiceless hello and welcome to episode 142 of who killed i'm your host bill huffman And this is a Slow Burn Media and Evergreen Podcast production. On this week's show, we are going to be doing something a little bit different. Uh, We're going to be actually talking to another true crime host, the host of a new true crime show called Crime Capsule. It's also a show that I produce for Evergreen Podcasts. And this is an incredible show with an incredible amount of detail. And I am lucky enough to be joined by the host, Benjamin Morris. Thanks a lot for joining me, Ben.
1: Thanks for having me, man. I appreciate it.
2: Yeah, it's uh, pretty exciting. You you just got the show rolling. Let's see, you're seven episodes, six episodes in, and it's going well. And how do you feel about everything?
1: Well, uh, when I hear the number 142, you know, I feel like I'm wearing little baby shoes. Uh, and here here comes somebody wearing some army boots, but... You know, we're having fun. We are, we're having fun. And it has been really cool to see uh, just the way that the true crime community has been so gracious to us uh, as kind of a new voice. And we have been grateful to all of the team that has helped to make it happen. So we're, you know, we're, as we say, we're, we're kind of just getting started, but we are really excited to bring some new perspectives and some new, some new voices to the, to the scene.
2: Yeah, so what is exactly Crime Capsule? It has an origin story. So what is the origin story of Crime Capsule?
1: So the folks at Arcadia realized that they were sitting on a treasure trove, really, of material, and they wanted to go through and bring the voices of true crime writing to the American public through the lens of the Crime Capsule website. So we started as a website and were covering... Books, new and old, for about two years or so, a couple books a week, bringing those out of the backlist and saying, "Hey, you know, here's some cases that are pertinent to your area," or, "Hey, it's the anniversary of this particular murder," or, "Hey, here's some good old fashioned Chicago bootlegging that everybody needs a piece of," you know, and bringing those those titles back to the public attention uh, through through this digital portal. So. Long story short, we, after a couple of years running the site and having a great time with it, uh, the Brain Trust said, hey, uh, there are some potentially interesting collaborations out there. Let's try some new media. And so that's how the Crime Capsule podcast was born.
2: Well, that's very interesting. And I think that it's really cool that, like you said, a lot of stuff that has been forgotten over time and... There are so many stories and so many interesting cases that, you know, they, they get pushed to the back burner because of something, you know, more glorifying, you know, something, a serial killer or, uh, you know, just something that just catches the public zeitgeist. And then that other stuff that was in the zeitgeist, it falls to the wayside and people forget about it. And even true crime people like myself who've been doing this for a number of years you know you don't really do a lot of older cases and a lot of the cases that have been forgotten I mean I think the oldest case that I've covered was a 1952 uh, family murder that's still unsolved but it's so interesting to look back and to be able to see and hear from these authors and get this stuff down on digital and you know it's an oral history it's it's a great way to keep the public informed on the stuff that the mainstream media isn't covering, in my opinion.
1: Yeah, I think that's fair to say in, in, in many respects. You know, one of the strengths of the Arcadia and history press stable of authors is, a little convoluted sentence there, but we'll, we'll roll with it, one of the strengths of our authorship is that the folks who are writing these books, I mean, they live in the communities that they're writing about. They have been tracking these stories for months and years and sometimes generations, if it's a, say, old legend or something like that. And they are deeply invested in the veracity of what they're writing, of course, but also how that story colors and flavors what it means to live in, say... Charleston or Seattle or Pittsburgh or anywhere, New Orleans, you know, there's so many dimensions to a crime narrative that come to the fore if you're actually part and parcel of that community. And the authors that are represented on this backlist uh, and the authors that are still publishing new books today, I mean, they they really feel that. And so they, they bring kind of new things to the fore. And I don't mean to impugn researchers who come into an area from outside and start looking into a case. I mean, of course, that's good work too. But there's something, I think, really vital that is present when you have someone who is close to the environs or to the case itself. So it's been really exciting to to get to work with them. And since Crime Capsule is primarily an interview format show, the structure of our show is we bring Arcadia authors on and talk about their books, sometimes over two or three episodes, we really have the opportunity to dig deep into the detail and really hear about the case itself, but also what it's like to research and write a book on the case. And so it's a real privilege to get to speak to these these experts.
2: Yeah, really, it must be. I know that uh, we just did the Rita Schuler book, you know, the Aline Fogle case. And, you know, just talking with her and just hearing her side of the story and being involved from the beginning. And then after she was retired, I mean, that was such an interesting story. You know, I hope people go back and listen to that episode, that series. It was just She's got such great Southern flair that it's uh, it's very great to hear from people you don't typically hear from. And
1: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, and Rita's a great example of an Arcadia author who had a direct personal involvement in the case that she was writing about. I mean, it's, spoiler alert, she... She solved the case, right? I mean, she solved this unsolved murder from. 40 it's in the years title ago. of the
2: book, so you're not really, you know, yeah. spoiling the case. So, but it, but but I still support people going and listening. <laughs> yeah,
1: you know, my brother was a journalist for many many years, and uh, you know, we've had a conversation too about what it means to bury the lead. We ain't burying no leads around here. Rita cracked it, you know. But but she's just one of many such authors that we have. We have. Authors who were formerly judges who ended up tracking cases that they got really interested in and then wrote writing books about those, you know, and saying, you know, here I had this unique opportunity to preside over a compelling murder trial, say, and taking that all the way to the bank and saying, I'm gonna tell this story soup to nuts, start to finish. We have journalists who first broke the story, right? Uh, Josh Sushan is a really good example. He was the one who, um, well, we can talk a lot about Josh because <laughs> Josh is such a compelling figure in the, in the crime writing world, you know, but he broke the news of Tina Fales's killer's confession. And that hit close to home because Tina Fales's killer had been friends with Josh's sister and had walked her home from school and from parties. So, you know, that you've got just this kind of deep, deep connection. It's really cool.
2: So, what's your connection with Arcadia Publishing?
1: Yeah. uh, So, I actually started off as an Arcadia author myself about, oh, time flies, Bill. Uh, I try not to count the years, but sometimes we're were forced into that position. Uh, Twenty thirteen, I had recently returned to the United States from all of my graduate training overseas. I did all my graduate work in the United Kingdom in Edinburgh and then in Cambridge, and then come back to the states.
2: Congratulations, Smarty! <laughs>
1: well, thank you. I I was very grateful to have uh, the opportunities, and um, never tried really hard not to lose sight of what a gift the chance to study. Uh, deeply in another culture, represented, and
2: I've been there.
1: <laughs> I hey, didn't
2: study there. I've been well, to both places, but well, I did not
1: study there. Unfortunately, uh, I mean it's a it's a pretty special place. Um, yes, I think a lot of folks, very, you know, they call it you know sort of the Hogwarts of of real life and so forth. But you know, really, a lot of folks there try to just keep their heads down and do the work, right? I mean, like you can get distracted by the. The spires and the towers and the, and the okay maybe I did see the wardrobe from C.S. Lewis in one of my professor's chambers, but that you
2: refer to it as a chamber. I mean, come on.
1: Sorry, uh, no. I mean the it's kind of place where you were taught really a lot of intellectual humility and and curiosity and carefulness and meticulousness and uh, those skills stay with you for for a long time, but. Back to back to crime. Um, the <laughs> I was actually uh, a victim of a crime when I was living in the UK, which is kind of a funny story. I'll be glad glad to tell you. But oh, after... that,
2: always funny! It's always funny to hear of yourself being victimized. So yeah, go ahead.
1: Uh, well, okay. <laughs> uh, I mean, yeah. Well, I'll I'll tell you what happened with Hattiesburg in a second. But I was in Scotland. Um, this was in 2012. I had I was working um, at the university as a researcher. Uh, for about six months on postdoc. And I was walking home one night, the University of Edinburgh is kind of in the old part of the city, uh, old town, not, not new town, as they call it. Um, I was walking home through one of the largest public parks in the city, it was called the Meadows. And I had been having a drink with a friend at a pub, and it was you know, time to get home uh, for, you know, for, and get ready for, for the next day's I work in the library and so forth, and as I was walking home through the meadows, which really is a very safe public green, it's, it's large, it's, it's extremely large, but it's well lit and um, lots of good paths and good sight lines, it really is, you know, very unusual for anything to, to happen there. I was jumped by uh, these two guys, and, uh, well, I should say that I was, I was late to get back to my flat. And so I was sort of, I wasn't walking. I was actually kind of running and they saw me. And one of them did this thing where he just kind of like planted himself in front of me and put his fist out. And so like all, he didn't have to do anything. My face just collided with his fist, right? Because I was running. I hit the deck. He jumps on top and he starts beating the crap out of me while his, while the other guy is like going through my coat, gets my phone, gets my wallet, uh, goes through my, my briefcase and gets my laptop. And... The guy probably lands about ten to twelve solid right hooks on me, uh, while Jeez. like I'm flat on my back, you know, in the meadows and and on this sort of walking path. And he's got he's very skilled at what he does. He's got my shoulders pinned down with his knees, right, you know, and he's just wailing on me. He's, okay,
2: he's a skilled skilled robber. Great,
1: I respect technique. I mean, <laughs> good technique is good technique. <laughs>
2: you are in the U. You are in the UK. So, manners, manners matter. Yep. I get it.
1: Yep. And so, of course, I am just trying to, tell him, like, just here, just take it, just take it, just you know, like, get out of here. You know, let me go, take it. And they get the stuff. the The tall guy who was grabbing the uh, you know the items, he kind of disappears. But the shorter guy who had been the one to land the punch and then get on top of me and beat the crap out of me. He doesn't, he doesn't run off. Like he, it's kind of interesting. He, he, he walks off, but he doesn't like hot foot it. Okay. Uh, And I get up a bloody nose, you know, like all that kind of stuff. Right. And like, okay, it sucks, but you know, I'm from Mississippi and we don't take shit lying down. So, um, so I collect myself and I'm like, this guy is still right there. All right, let's go. So, so I start going after him and he starts, I'm calling out to him. I was like, Hey, Hey, come back here. You know, like give me my shit back, you know? And I'm sorry if I don't mean to swear, but this, I think probably what I did say in the moment. Yeah. Mom, if you're listening, just, you know, don't, don't take it personally, please. Um, so anyway, I start going after him and he, he increases his pace. I did not know at this time that Scotland has laws, uh, more or less saying you can defend yourself if attacked, right? That they have some fairly robust self-defense laws in place. I didn't know. I was not going to aggress the guy. I wasn't going to like tackle him from behind and do the same thing that, to him that he did to me, no. But I was going to try to tail him and try to signal for help from like a university police officer, like a campus police officer, or once we got into the downtown area, if we made it that far, an actual officer, okay? Um, so we start off, uh, well, let's call, this, let's call this guy Alistair. So Alistair and I go off on a little, little, little goose chase. He's about 30 feet ahead of me and he's taken these corners. I know the old town pretty well because I lived there for a good while. Um, he's taken these corners. He, we go up through the university area. We go up uh, the sort of George Fourth Bridge area. We go up through across the Royal Mile. Uh, we get up by Waverly Station. And, of course, any member of the public that sees this sees, you know, a guy in a trench coat. I think he had my phone and my wallet. The other guy had the laptop. Alistair, he's ahead of me. And then there's just like some random Yankee, you know, like with a bloody nose calling out to the Scottish guy, you know, kind of from a, from a distance behind him. Also, I didn't know if he had a knife, and I think he probably did. But we go on this chase. Everywhere that we go, by the time we leave there, the police get to that spot, right? Like I I'm, I'm sort of signal to a couple of folks like, hey, call the cops. Well, the cops are they're arriving to where we just were, and we've already moved on. Eventually we get to... Uh, Waverley station, cross over some of the train tracks and get up to an area by Calton Hill. And if anybody listening knows Edinburgh, you know that you don't go to Calton Hill at night. You don't. That's what you don't do unless you're looking for trouble because you will find it. He goes up to Calton Hill on a set of staircases with some seriously blind corners. And you know, at this point I say, look, okay, this is this is now I'm about to enter foolishness. Um, you know, I can't see. Now,
2: anything. now you're going to have foolishness. <laughs> it's I, I, just like you, you were worrying about your hearing your mom. <laughs> yeah. Having your mom hear you swear. I think she'd be a little bit more concerned of the fact that you chased down somebody who assaulted
1: you. I'm not sure she knows this part of the story. <gasps> I mean we went. it was like a good mile mile and a half that we were that we Jeez. were you know I was like trying to talk to the guy like you know it's
2: like a born identity <laughs> a little bit minus a the really foot cool chase gadgets through Edinburgh
1: <laughs> yeah um, <laughs> so anyway he gets up he goes up the these sort of this really, really sketchy, skeevy, dodgy, as the Brits would say, you know, set of steps up to Colton Hill. And I was like, all right, I'm done. So I go back to Edinburgh, to Waverly Station, train station, main train station town, find one of the security officers there, tell him what happened, give him the whole story. They call an ambulance because I'm still, you know, pretty messed up. And long story short, my (laughs) I'll never forget. I mean, they they I file a report, you know, like the, we had yeah, described the whole thing. The guy says, look, you made the right call. You know, you, should, you definitely shouldn't have gone up, you know, after him at that point. You know, they send out a squad. Of course he's in the wind. I mean, he's gone. You know, there's no, yeah, right. Uh, they send a medic to come and check me out uh, or they bring a medic from one of the local uh, units to come and check me out. And there's this hilarious moment of, you know, involving the vagaries of of, of British medical law where uh, they can't give me a ride home to my apartment, which is now several miles away, you know, dark night, unless I accept an ambulance ride to the hospital first. And the guy beat the crap out of me, but he, but I'm mobile and like, I don't want to go to the hospital. I'll, I'll recover. It'll be fine. So they kind of treat me on the spot in the back of the ambulance, but they don't actually take me home. So I then have to walk home in the middle of the night. Oh, wait for it, but wait, but wait. And i walk all the way down Princess Street and then all the way down uh, past the Queen's Theater. So it's like a very, you know, like a mile one way and a mile the next way. And right at that intersection where I'm getting close to the flat where I'm staying, I see there's, like, some event on at one of the concert halls in that area. It's a big arts district. And I see something like 30 police officers, like, all out on the street, just kind of hanging out, talking, like, watching the, you know, the crowds go by, like, messing with the cordons. And it's like, so that's where you all were. You know, (laughs) like, here I am chasing this perp across town. And, you know, couldn't find, you know, a uniform to save my life. And then... There we are. So it was It was kind of funny. The BBC did write an article about it, and they got a couple details wrong. But if you look up for a, an article 2012, uh, uh, I guess it'll be October 2012, there's an article headline, something like, Man Attacked While Walking Home in Edinburgh's Meadows Park or something like that. That's me. They didn't name me, but that's me. And so anyway, that's my main career as a Vic. Uh, happy to talk about being a perp. <laughs>
2: Crime has no bounds. Across the pond or not?
1: It does not. It does not.
2: I I can say that I did not have that experience when I was in Edinburgh or in uh, Cambridge or in London, but, you know, everybody's got a story, so... No,
1: it's a a great city, and I still love it, and that experience was one in a million, and I think had I gone up those steps to Calton Hill, you and I would not be sitting here right now, so... But to answer your question, I do need to answer your question about how the Arcadia partnership took shape. In 2013, uh, the history press was putting out sort of feelers among the writing community of Mississippi to say that they were looking to commission a new history of the city of Hattiesburg, which is my hometown, because there was no full-length narrative history, there were only kind of compilation histories or sort of like visual histories. No one had ever sat down and told the story of the city from sort of beginning to the present day. Long story short, um, I put in a proposal for that, having just you know returned to the region from you know being overseas and having had some training uh, in in that area. And they took the proposal. Took a couple of years to research, and uh, out of that kind of uh, my relationship with the press. But one of the things that was so interesting about doing that work in the archives, um, there are still surviving dozens and dozens and dozens. I don't remember exactly how many. I, I think it's maybe about 100, 120. I'd have to check my notes. But a substantial number of original criminal Affidavits, arrest warrants, basically from the earliest days of Hattiesburg's history, which is in the 1880s. It was a town that's founded after the Civil War, but it was a frontier town at the time. In in sort of when Mississippi was was being sort of settled, we have those. And one of the things that I found so interesting as I was looking through these is that seeing what people get arrested for in American history really illuminates a time and a place in a way that sort of, oh, a nice building went up or, oh, they built a train depot, you know, like that sort of thing. You know, everybody can do the big stuff, right? But when you actually find what kind of offenses are being generated in an emerging and nascent city, you really get a window onto that society that you wouldn't get any other way. So it was it was really cool to see that. And I actually ended up incorporating quite a lot of them into the book that I wrote about Hattiesburg, because they they just shone that light so clearly on what was going on at the time. So I mean, I, I can read you a little bit here if you want, or just kind of summarize them for you. Yeah,
2: just give me an example, you know, something crazy. Yeah,
1: sure. Crazy. sure. There's a There's a couple good ones. Uh, there, there really are. And I was able to reproduce uh, one of them in the book. I will, let me just summarize. Here, the uh, there were a lot. The most the thing that people were most uh, widely arrested for flat out was profanity. Uh, public offense back in the day. That was I did a, a sort of a tally. I, I took every single affidavit that we found in the archives at, at, at University of Southern Mississippi. Made a little chart out of them. It's like, okay, what's the number one crime in this time period? Which is like a 1884 to 1890, something like that. Maybe 1886 to 1890, 1889, something like that. About a five-year span of time. Number one crime: cussing. <laughs> right? Sorry, mom. You know uh, what? A
2: bunch of squares.
1: I swear. Well, hold on. I ain't done. I ain't done. Um, Number two crime, gambling. Actually, with uh, things like public property at stake, which <laughs> you think about it, it's a frontier town, man. What are people going to bet? They're going to bet that. Hey, their-
2: here's my deed to my house. Yeah.
1: I got <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Um, a lot of selling up. hooch. A lot of selling hooch. Gee, there's which, a surprise. Right, and when you think about like, like the three of these together, you know, you got a bunch of good old boys kind of hanging around, you know, the fire pit, they're drinking, they're cussing, they're gambling away each other's <laughs> house deeds. <laughs>
2: I, mean, I mean, it's like you could go on a camping trip with your buddies and you could come, back a, you're not gonna come back, you're not going to come back, you're going to come back arrested and without any money because you ber- just
1: broke every law. <laughs> it's It's not a hard picture to paint, is it? <laughs> no, not at all. Not at all. I can no, totally like- imagine it. Yeah, um, and then a couple others. I mean, there's some really interesting ones. There, are, there are a lot of crimes that were generated around the train station, like loitering and car hopping and um, freeloading and you know that sort of stuff. That's kind of to be expected. But some of my favorites were uh, there's a guy, this kid uh, named Kaylee Williams in 1899 who stole a box of oysters. It was worth 10 cents at the time. Um, there were that son of a gun. Uh, I know, uh, depositing garbage without burying it. Well, that tells you what sanitation looked like back then, right? I mean, it's, that's revealing. The, my two favorites of all uh, of all time that I found, the one that I was able to publish in the book was Bob Moore, who on August twenty fourth, eighteen ninety eight, he got the the city's first speeding ticket that we know of. Now you you might ask yourself a speeding ticket in 1898. What's what's not computing here?
2: Not a lot of transportation vehicles can break speed limits in that era.
1: Yeah, when did when did when did Henry Ford, you know, mass produce the Model T? Definitely not 1898. Bob Moore on August 24th, 1898 did quote unlawfully drive a horse at a reckless gate and against the peace and dignity of the state of Mississippi. That unquote.
2: bastard. I know, right? I tell you what. <laughs> I, geez, I mean, just a bunch of hoodlums down in Hattiesburg. Yeah.
1: What I want to know is how did they catch him? I don't know. I mean, if he's I mean, already...
2: they probably followed... They, they,
1: they, maybe they just followed the horse host. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah, a little evidentiary trail there. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I'm assuming that the cops also had to drive their horses against the peace and dignity of the state of Mississippi in order to apprehend the guy, but... You know, unfortunately,
2: sounds like a modern-day uh, California Highway Patrol chase,
1: <laughs> or Canadian, maybe <laughs> right? Um, but uh, well,
2: you know, hey, who cares what happens to the rest of the public? We'll just we're chasing this guy, and
1: there you go, pull over, there you please. Go. <laughs> um, and then there was one other, you know, my other favorite one, which I couldn't publish in the book because it's a family newspaper, so to speak, right? That I had it printed out, had a facsimile made, and it's framed on my wall because. I just, it, it charmed me no end. And I'll, I'll just read it to you if you want me to. I'll read it verbatim. Just imagine this like beautiful, flowing, late Victorian script, this sort of elegant cursive, you know, this hand-signed affidavit. It is just a magnificent document to look at. You want to hear what it says? Yes, please. State of Mississippi, Perry County, personally appeared before the undersigned, the mayor of the city of Hattiesburg, Scott Beeson, he was the deputy, uh, the deputy marshal, makes oath that Ed Keaton did, on the first day of September, 1899, in said city and county, make use of obscene or vulgar language in the presence or hearing of two or more persons by saying, quote, kiss my ass, or words to that effect.
2: (laughs) He broke the law by writing
1: that. (laughs) Uh, I don't know. That's a good question. I don't know what the statute was there. Uh, But, you know, I found that, and it's like, here you have a guy over 100 years ago, 120, 130 years ago, beating Bart Simpson to the punch, right? And it's like, when I saw that people, my great, great ancestors, right, in in small town Mississippi were going around saying, kiss my ass, I just thought, you know, this is a precious, precious document, (laughs) <laughs>
2: and, Something to keep for the books. Yeah,
1: that's for sure. Yeah, but it also think about it. You know, it really does illuminate. Like we were saying, you know, it illuminates the life and the texture of a place. You know, a city in that period in American history that you would never get just by looking at street layouts and you know architectural styles. It's it's a totally different lens.
2: Okay, so the late 1800s, they were getting arrested for gambling and profanity, and then in, you know, the 19, you know, Prohibition, they're getting arrested for bootlegging, which is also something they were doing anyway. Yep. But, uh, you know, it was just like they just kept the party going and just probably, you know, increased their production. Yeah and then you know as this as the years go on i mean you get to the 50s you get to the 60s and hmm. rioters protests uh you know everything kind of evolves with time and it's interesting like you know with the founding of the internet and the, you know that stuff i mean look at the cyber crimes that's a, that's a whole thing that mm-hmm. you know nobody ever thought was going to exist and then it's just it just goes to show you how much you can tell by looking at those old reports of what was really like the main thing at that time? Like, there wasn't a place to go. You know, there wasn't a mall. There wasn't a there wasn't a place to go and hang out. There was a bar, and you drank. And guess what? You probably gambled a little bit. And it just so happens that those are all against the law. Which
1: yeah, no. You're nowadays, right.
2: nowadays, look at Mississippi, and it's like. Come down here and gamble.
1: We got all the boats all along the Gulf Coast. Just make yourself make yourself at home. Yeah, no, you're right. And when you look back at that time in, in history, you see um, really creative ways that folks found to entertain themselves. And Hattiesburg, we have a unique signifier or a unique uh, sort of gold star on our on our lapel, which is that Hattiesburg was home to the last bare-knuckled boxing match in the United States. Totally illegal. It was the sullivan Kilrain Rain uh, boxing match in 1889. Thousands of attendees. there's a makeshift ring built out in the middle of the woods, you know, Yellow Pine, Southern Pine, Timber Forest, built a ring overnight. They had There's amazing stories to it. They um, People were coming up from New Orleans to, to watch it because it was so sort of widely publicized. They would get on the train and they would uh, buy a ticket and the destination uh, was labeled as like your ticket said destination was the word destination. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, you know, they were trying to throw the fed off, right. To say like, this is going to happen, right. Like we're going to do this. Um, and that match went for 75 rounds in the sweltering summer heat of south mississippi and um it was it was really an exceptional moment and
2: did did these guys uh, survive
1: (laughs) well uh jake kilrain got the worst of it um there was i think it was around round 12 that um john sullivan who was kind of a you know big bruiser he won but i think he lost his breakfast fairly early on it showed up on the mat Uh, Because, you know, back in the days, these guys are eating these massive, massive breakfasts complete with like sherry and brandy, you know, to get things (laughs) things going. And it, it all came back up. But no, Jake. Jake did have to. Got to get myself
2: all drunk for the boxing match in the woods.
1: <laughs> Look, man, do what you gotta do. Everybody's got their ritual, you know. <laughs> like, you've you've been to locker rooms where baseball players, you know, put on socks one, then the other, in the exact same way every I time. I like. wouldn't
2: know anything about that. I was a yeah. runner myself and wore the same the same <laughs> outfit for I'm pretty sure th- three straight years. <laughs> It was washed, but I'm just saying for meat day, for the day of the meat, I always wore the same clothes. Never failed. It, whatever gets you in the right frame of mind, I, I look at it as.
1: I believe it. I believe it. Superstition is not just hocus pocus, you know. Uh, so anyway, yeah. There, and that was all totally illegal. And you had all the forms of entertainment kind of come you know, come together at once in that particular event. And, you know, Hattiesburg shone pretty brightly that day. We're, we're, we were proud of it. And as you know, I mean, like, f- folks are, why do people do what they do, Bill? Why Why do people do what they do is, is one of the questions I think we are all trying to answer as we sort of explore this material. And there are such myriad ways of looking at it. But I had the great privilege of working on this book as a local, right? And you know, that's one of the things that Arcadia really does try to do with its authors is to find folks who have, you know, a passion for their stories and a passion for their places and to bring these particular stories uh, to light. It's a real privilege now that I'm serving as a host, you know, to get to speak to these incredible experts and, you know, the folks who've tracked these things for, for years and years and years. So anyway, that, that, the boxing the the drunkenness the driving the horse you know like the speeding ticket all that kind of stuff you know that's just the criminal aspect of of my little postage stamp you know but everyone that we speak to on the show they really have such a deep interest and love for their places that when they start telling these stories even of fairly dark moments in their city's histories or their community's histories they're able to do so with, with knowledge and with respect and with with tact. And it's it's really cool. So uh, we've been grateful to get to work with them so far.
2: Now, what, uh, what, kind, what kind of books do we have to look forward to breaking down, you know, moving forward? And what kind of crazy crimes? I know that we, we've talked about this uh, off the air a little bit, and it uh, sounds like there's some interesting things that coming down the pipeline.
1: I like to think so. You know, uh, we started off uh, with Josh Sushan and Rita Schuler, who both had tracked unsolved murders over decades and decades, one out in California and the other out in uh, South Carolina. We are going to shift gears a little bit from the murder thing, and we're going to we're going to have some fun over the holidays. I think uh, Arcadia has a couple of titles on and uh, your listeners may or may not be aware of the term or the concept of the Dixie Mafia. Uh, but yeah, I, wish, I, know, I, I know. would say
2: so I would say some of them may, but most don't. So I would like to know more about this.
1: Well, It's kind of what it sounds like. I mean, you had a bunch of good old boys back in the 40s and 50s and 60s who decided that they wanted to run their towns their way and they wanted to get a couple of crooked sheriffs on board and just run a game on everybody in town. And you see organized crime in the South every bit as visibly as you would see it in the Northeast or in Chicago or uh, in New York, but but they're rednecks, right? <laughs> I mean, they might not be very good at it, <laughs> but Lord, if it ain't entertaining, so it's great.
2: All right, so give me an example of some some really stupid crime that they would have attempted if.
1: Well. I mean, a lot of it was, I mean, there's plenty of things falling off the backs of trucks and, you know, the local law enforcement turns a blind eye because ain't that a pretty new TV just showed up in his living room. You know what I mean? Um, There's plenty of that kind of stuff. We're going to be looking at three titles to start. We've got a book about the organized crime scene in Phoenix City, Alabama, uh, which was pretty exciting. We've got a book uh, called Mississippi Moonshine Politics. Which was uh, published by a lady named Janice Tracy. And there's some really good stories in there about how during Mississippi was the last state to end prohibition, if I remember correctly, or one of the very last. Prohibition in Mississippi did not actually end until 1966, I think it was. Yeah, I know, right? No um, wonder
2: people were getting busted for bootlegging.
1: <laughs> they were, and I think, you know, my parents were, were um, they were Presbyterians, not Baptists, and I think they might have had to buy a little liquor out of state, if you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah, I mean,
2: I, I I lived in Utah for a year. I know that, uh, you know, if you go right over the border into Wendover, Nevada, which is literally just a border, and the only reason it's there is because there are casinos that there are not in
1: there you go utah (laughs) there you go um yeah there's there's a pretty good story which i will i won't spoil here because it is actually magnificent and i hope your listeners will join us for uh for janice's account of it involving the uh the governor of mississippi at the time in a particular sort of banquet he was throwing uh, which may or may not have been raided by the cops um the governor of Mississippi under prohibition in the 60s. You know, I mean, when people get thirsty, man, they just ain't nothing else going to satisfy.
2: I mean, a dog's got a drink, right?
1: There you go. So we'll do that one, and then we're going to look in at, uh, we'll probably finish out the Dixie Mafia series with a book about what was going on in Austin, Texas in the 50s and 60s. And that involves actually pretty interesting. When we when we did a piece on it for the website, I remember thinking, now, these are not some local yokels. These are actually fairly, fairly skilled perps. A lot of safe cracking. There was kind of a safe cracking outfit, I guess you could say, in Austin at that time that really did elude law enforcement for a good number of months. And Our author there did a lot of research and got some great photos of evidence and perps and, you know, that kind of stuff. And obviously, a lot of this is also tied up in associated or kind of ancillary crimes like bootlegging or, in some cases, organized prostitution or, you know witness tampering whenever there is where, you know, charges are brought, you know, that sort of thing. So there's a whole constellation of crimes that tend to take place around this alleged Dixie mafiosi activity. (laughs) but It's fun. It's a lot of fun. I'm really looking forward to just kind of bringing some, uh, some levity to the, bring a little holiday cheer to our listeners.
2: Yeah, things can get pretty dark, and uh, especially around this time of year, people are definitely looking for things that aren't necessarily going to put them in the dark spirits they want to be brought up, and there's nothing wrong with that, you know? No, everybody yeah. needs a little cheer.
0: And, true. you know,
2: it can't be all doom and gloom all the time. Although, I will admit, I will, I'll admit I do a weekly true crime show, so it is always doom and gloom for me.
1: Can I tell you one more story just about southern folks getting up to no good (laughs) so a couple years ago this is after i finished the hattiesburg history book a couple years later i was living in new orleans but was kind of going back and forth between mississippi and hattiesburg and new orleans and i still had a mississippi driver's license at that time and because i still had a mississippi driver's license and still had my voter registration in Forrest county mississippi I got called up for grand jury service, and it was fascinating. And if any of your listeners have ever served, not just on a jury, but on a grand jury, I know different states have different ways of doing things, you know, you are, it is such an interesting window onto the legal system, onto the justice system, and to that intersection of where evidence and charges meet, right? And in our case, we would meet about once a month. And we would crank through 50 or 60 potential indictments a day, right? Sort of an all-day affair at the courthouse. You'd settle in, and you'd go through each case on the docket.
2: Seems like an awful a lot.
1: You know, we all thought that it would be at the beginning of the process. A, a grand jury ser- a term of service is six months in, in Mississippi. Um, month one, we're all sort of like, oh, my goodness, like, what are we in for? You know, that sort of thing. I mean, I wanted to do it because I was so fascinated by the process, but we thought that it was gonna be a grind. It's not because a lot of cases are clear cut, you know, like guys driving down the road, speeding, gets pulled over, and you know, what is the what does the officer see, you know, on the floor of the passenger seat but a kilo of meth? Well (laughs) I mean how much deliberation Really, are we going to need on that? Yeah, right.
2: But that pound of meth wasn't there before.
1: <laughs> well, well, I did have one case where a guy was found with like a, a Ziploc bag of meth tucked in his waistband that he claimed he had found on the side of the road and was just going to quote unquote hold on to it in case he found who it belonged to. <laughs> That was that's on record. That was on record in our indictments. Uh, don't, yeah, yeah. don't
2: don't worry, don't worry, officer. I'm I'm just holding just this, keeping it safe. I'm just keeping this safe <laughs> for the potential uh, perpetrator in case you know maybe he wants to share a little.
1: <laughs> so uh, th- we had a real range of cases there, and I'll, and the one I want to tell you about uh, get to it in a second. I-, I will say this, you know, Southern folks misbehaving is a timeless category of comedy. I mean, it just it never gets old, ever, ever, ever. I will die on that hill. And we had we had some real idiots, uh, you know, come through our docket, just things you couldn't make up. We also had some really grisly cases. I mean, we had a lot of things that would really chill you to the bone as far as like, this is happening in our community. Things like you know, drug-addicted sex offenders who could not deny whether or not they had abused a child because they were so strung out. that They couldn't say that they didn't do it, right? And, you know, I don't want to go into details because some of the details are ghastly, and I'll never forget them. Um, And there was one case in particular that the DA came in to our panel, and she said... I've never had to do this before, but I am going to apologize to you all for what I'm about to have to share with you regarding uh, an abuse case, because it is the single most horrific case I've ever seen in my tenure as DA. And then she told us what the case was. And I, if, if you know the novel Joe by uh, the novelist Larry Brown, there is a scene in that novel where this kind of ne'er-do-well very poor but also very evil older man more or less ends up selling one of his own children into sexual slavery. We had that case, but it was like worse than it was in the novel. And the novel is horrific, right? I mean, Larry Brown's an incredible novelist, and that book is an extraordinary story. Anyway, we, did, we got a lot of those kinds of cases, and those too are part and parcel of a city and its community, and we have to look it squarely in the eye. I do want to tell you about one, though, which still tickles me. There was a motel room on the north side of town, and investigators were called, or a uniform was called, to respond to a gentleman who <laughs> had had a particular kind of liaison in this motel room, <laughs> and I can tell you, the Highway Forty Nine North out of Hattiesburg is not the classiest joint. You know, like it's the classiest strip you're going to be rolling up and down.
2: Uh, just I think, everybody knows a street like that yeah, in their town.
1: I think so. So this this officer he ends up at this particular motel, uh, knocks on the door, responding to a distress call and we we, of course, don't get the full picture of what had happened, but we get enough of a picture. and And the picture that we got was there was some drugs. There was a lady whose services had been contracted. Uh, there was a, a room in some considerable disarray, okay? This guy was having an affair. Uh, So there was infidelity involved, money had changed hands, you know, so there was prostitution involved. Something had gone wrong in the liaison, and it's not entirely clear what, but this gentleman had been stabbed several times, I think with some scissors uh, that she had had. Maybe there was a fight, I don't know. But the key detail for the law enforcement officer, which he uh, brought back to us, was that there was a jar of cocoa butter that seemed to have been <laughs> involved in a rather spectacular fashion uh, in the <laughs> course of these crimes. And, you know, the officer was telling us this, and he he couldn't really make sense out of it because, you know, the the guy who had been stabbed and was bleeding maybe wasn't in, like, his right mind, and then the lady who'd done the stabbing during the act. But we got to the end of it, and, and suffice to say... Uh, there was an indictment and the very last question (laughs) that this sweet, just, you know, blue haired church lady, you know, who was on our, our panel, you know, our grand jury panel sat in the corner, barely said a, barely said a word, you know, throughout the whole proceeding, you know, the whole time we were there, she raised her hand and she said, officer. And uh, yes, ma'am. Uh, Will the cocoa butter face any charges? <laughs> 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 it's supposed to say, we didn't get a lot of work done uh, for, the, <laughs> for the rest of the day. <laughs> well, you know, you know the, old indict,
2: the old story, you can indict a ham sandwich, so why not some cocoa butter?
1: <laughs> there you go. So, anyway, um, you know, it's 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 a lot of fun. Uh
2: Lots of stuff to look forward to it, coming coming this. up.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You never know what what some local yokels are going to get up to, but you know we uh, we we try to do folks proud. What can I say?
2: All right, so let's uh, let's tell people where they can find your show. And yeah,
1: absolutely. And uh, and there's also one other thing that I want to yeah I want to I want to kind of open the door, you know, to your listeners who I know are uh, fascinated, you know, by this material and often have stories themselves uh, to tell. We we at Arcadia are we rely on l- locals. You know, we rely on folks who know a lot about cases or who have stories and and cases as passion projects that they've been following, and we we want to hear from them. But um, the Crime Capsule podcast is it is on all the major providers It's on the you know, the Spotify and on the app store, uh, the Google store, the Apple store, you know, the, all of the the main platforms. You can also actually just listen to it straight on the Evergreen website, which is evergreenpodcasts.com. There's a little plug-in You can just click and go. Um, so we would, anyone who's interested in the, really the latest, uh, and the, some of the most in-depth true crime writing, uh, authorship, uh, Today, we would love for y'all to come and hang out with us, and and sort of, you know, join the conversation with these interviews. We we are really privileged to get to speak to some incredible authors. I can't say that enough. Uh, these folks really know their cases, and they are passionate about them. And it is so nice to get to hear it straight from the horse's mouth. You know, we really we really do get that uh, with Crime Capsule, and I'm uh, it's a privilege. So y'all y'all come and join us. Um, and conversely if anyone out there in TV land has an idea for a book, Arcadia welcomes proposals. It's the, the gate is open. And the way that you do that is you go to the Arcadia Publishing website, and uh, there's a little button on there or sort of link, which is it, it looks it looks like either sort of how do I become an author or make me an author. Uh, I think you may have to go to sort of Arcadia Publishing and then the Contact Us page or something like that. But there's very clear instructions about sort of how do I become an Arcadia author and what does filling out a proposal look like. And the door is always open. So if folks out there have ideas and they, they love research and they're not, um, you know, uh, they're not afraid of putting words on paper, <laughs> which is is its own. It is a challenge sometimes, but it's a joy, right? And you know, if you like writing, if you like reading, and you like digging into this kind of stuff, uh, Arcadia really does want to hear from you. You know, we get some of our best proposals and pitches just out of the blue, right? They're not always commissioned. they sometimes folks come to us, and we want that. We really do. So um, I would I would love to extend that invitation. To anybody out there who you know who's got to be in their bonnet, and they just got to let it out. So
2: that's that's pretty much it. And then Crime Capsule, when does Crime Capsule air?
1: Yeah, we're every Thursday. Uh, we are every Thursday. And uh, sometimes we'll do one book over a series of interviews, and other times we'll do just kind of a one-off, you know, one author, one episode, you know, that sort of thing. But um, yeah, we, are, we would love for you all to come and hang out with us and... And hear these authors and and do the deep dive because they've done the work
2: and they can be found anywhere anybody gets their favorite podcasts as well as on evergreenpodcasts.com
1: it's been a real privilege bill and i can't thank you enough for having me on it's it's a joy to be able to you know just kind of enter this this community uh, as a new voice and to feel so welcomed and i really appreciate that so thank you
2: yeah Thank you, Ben. I think the the listeners will really have some new stuff to listen to. And I think, you know, the old, uh, you know, the murder of the week gets old after a while. So it's uh, definitely fun to have something new on the agenda. So thank you so much for taking the time to give us a little bit of a background to Crime Capsule and your history and your crime fighting abilities, as well as, uh, you know, a little insight into the justice system. So, yeah. Uh, Thanks so much. And can't wait to see what we've got coming up.
1: Sounds like a plan. I'll appreciate it. We'll talk to you soon.
2: All right. Well, you have a great Thanksgiving. Thanks, Ben. So there you have it. My conversation with Ben of Crime Capsule. And thank you guys so much for tuning in this week. I hope you guys have had a wonderful Thanksgiving. As you know, I drop new episodes of Who Killed Every Friday. New episodes of Crime Capsule will be dropping every Thursday. Now, if you enjoy this podcast, you can help support the show by using my PayPal username at WilliamHuffman3, or you can contribute to the show via the Venmo app with my username at Bill-Huffman-3. As you know, every contribution, big or small, helps keep these slow burn podcasts running. You can also support the show by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Again, these five stars help keep the important cases that I cover, such as Amy Mahalovics, in the spotlight. If you'd like to stay up to date on the cases that I have covered, as well as the new shows that I have in the pipeline, you know what to do. That's follow me on Twitter, at BillHuffman3. Thank you guys so much again for listening. Until next time... Have a great Thanksgiving. I hope you're enjoying your Black Friday shopping. As always,
1: be healthy and stay safe. Crime Capsule is a production of Evergreen Podcasts in partnership with Arcadia Publishing and the History Press and is a member of the Killer Podcasts Network. A special thanks to our producer, Bill Huffman, audio engineer, Ian Douglas, production director, Bridget Coyne, and our executive producers, Michael D'Aloya and Gerardo Orlando. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. We're just getting started here at Crime Capsule, and we're excited to bring you the best of true crime writing over the upcoming weeks and months. To find out more, visit us at evergreenpodcasts.com.